I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Today, I'd like to spend a few moments talking about children in corporate worship. There was recently a video that went sort of viral on social media of a pastor calling out a mother and a young child. The child wasn't crying or really disturbing anything, just making a little bit of noise. But it's raised the question of what are we to do with children in corporate worship? Should we send them out or should we welcome them? I fully recognize that this is not an easy question to answer. There are challenges with welcoming children into the corporate worship services. Those challenges exist for pastors, for the churches in general, and especially for parents. I remember the Sunday years ago driving home from a church service when my wife Becky said, wow, I think I was able to actually pay attention to the whole sermon today. Our kids had finally reached the age when they were able to sit still in the the church service without needing a lot of attention. And then since then, we've had two more children, and now we're dealing with a three-year-old and a one-year-old in corporate worship again. There's no doubt that welcoming children into the service is difficult for parents. But I'm convinced that it is the best thing for the children, for the parents, and really for the entire church. About a year ago, there was a blog post on a popular blog that argued that we should take the children out of the service. The title of the blog post was literally, Let the Little Ones Go From the Service. But I would like to suggest today that we should let the little children come. And the first and foremost significant reason that we should is because this is what the Bible teaches. It surprises me how often this part of the process of answering that question is skipped. Or, in many cases, scripture is sort of taken out of context in order to defend taking children from worship. But in contrast to that kind of argument, the biblical precedent is for entire households to worship together. This was the precedent in the Old Testament. Entire households would come together for the solemn assemblies of worship. For instance, when the people gathered to renew their covenant with God before crossing the Jordan River, Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 31, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And the same was true after the people conquered Ai on the other side of the Jordan. They gathered together to worship God, and Joshua chapter 8 says, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones. Even within the law of Moses, God gave specific commands that when the people gather for worship, they should do so as households. This precedent continued whenever the people gathered. For example, in 2 Chronicles 20, when King Jehoshaphat prayed on behalf of the people in the temple, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. When the prophet Joel called the people to a solemn assembly of repentance in Joel chapter 2, he commanded, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. In the same way, after the people returned from exile, and rebuilt Jerusalem, and rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah 12 tells us they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. 
You see, the biblical precedent is, is that it is God's desire to be praised, not in groups divided by age demographics, but in a multi-generational context. Psalm 148.12 says, young men and maidens together, old men and children. And nothing changed for the New Testament church. Whole families came together when churches gathered. One example of this in the book of Acts is with Eutychus, a young boy who listened to Paul preaching in a service in Troas late into the night and fell asleep falling out of a third-story window. And thankfully, Paul was able to raise him from the dead. When Paul wrote instructions to children in his letters, such as in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, these were letters that that he intended to be read aloud in church gatherings, he clearly envisioned children to be as part of the congregation. You see, nowhere in Scripture, either in the Old or New Testaments, is there ever even a hint of some kind of age segregation in the context of local church gatherings. And what did Jesus himself say? Let the little children come. When the disciples, with good motivation, wanted to send the children away out of fear that they would be a distraction, Jesus said, let the little children come. And yet Christians today seem to be more following the example of the disciples, well-meaning but wrong, than following the example of our Lord. Why is that? Well, we need to recognize that that largely the rationale for sending children out of the worship service, as well motivated as it might be, actually stems from secularist education philosophy. The kind of idea that says children need to be in their own age-segregated groups so that they can learn in their own uh, learning style and at their own learning level. Well, that kind of idea comes from men like Horace Mann, who rejected the philosophy of education prior to him that had been largely influenced and impacted by Puritan Christian ideas, and instead argued for the systematization of education, in which students were grouped into peer groups of similar ages and locked into fixed learning paces. Later, men like Granville Stanley Hall, a Darwinian evolutionist who also had a significant impact on the dominant education philosophy of the day, taught that children evolve from primitive stages to a more enlightened stage, mirroring the evolutionary stages of humankind. And so children need to be educated really apart from their parents, lest their development be hindered. That kind of philosophy was was then applied by the man known as the father of modern public education, John Dewey, who further argued that parents were incapable of educating their own children. And so the public school, not the home, was considered ultimately responsible for the instruction of the next generation. And it wasn't too long before Christians began to simply accept and adopt this underlying philosophy of education. Of course, Christians initially rejected the Darwinian foundation of this philosophy, but they nevertheless bought into the idea that experts were better equipped to educate children than parents. And even worse then, this philosophy began to make its way into churches, impacting philosophy and practice of the discipleship of children. I also think, though, that it is a misunderstanding of what happens in the context of corporate worship that also leads to misunderstandings, and I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, I'd like to recommend to you a hymn that actually was originally written as a children's hymn, but the best children's hymns are those that adults enjoy singing as well because they contain rich truth about God and are singable 
and are wonderful for, for people of all ages to sing. In 1848, Cecil Francis Alexander wrote the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, originally for children. She published it in a collection called Hymns for Little Children. But really, it's a wonderful hymn that all of us would benefit from singing. It's a hymn that focuses on God's creation and the fact that it displays God's glory. There's a refrain that that begins the hymn and then is sung after each stanza that reads, All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. And then each successive stanza highlights various aspects of God's creation that displays his glory that God has created and in which we should delight and rejoice. It's a wonderful hymn for children, but certainly for people of all ages in delighting in the creative power and the beautiful glory of our God. I think one of the biggest reasons that we send children out of worship is that we don't actually understand what is happening in the context of our corporate worship services. Most evangelicals today consider corporate worship as simply a Christian's expression of authentic devotion toward God. And this is exactly why many evangelicals object to children in corporate worship. They're not Christians yet, so why would we expect them to worship? Or they may be Christians, but but the way that adults worship is not authentic for children, so let's create a separate service for them where they are able to worship in a way that's more comfortable for them. That's, That's the reasoning. But here is an essential truth. Corporate worship is not just an expression of authentic devotion. Corporate worship is formative. Corporate worship is making disciples. Corporate worship is not simply a group of Christians getting together for authentic expression of worship and doctrinal instruction. Corporate worship is practice for the life of worship. Someone might object that since children don't know God yet, then they can't worship. And that's true. And so we should pull them out of corporate worship in order to introduce them to God. But based on what I've just mentioned, it's important to recognize that children learn how to worship long before they learn whom to worship. And what I am suggesting is that there are fundamental aspects of what it means to be a Christian, central aspects of what it means to love God that are learned only through regular, repeated practice and exposure, the kind of exposure that takes place uniquely in formal corporate worship. So in this sense, it is in the corporate worship of the church where our unconverted children will be best introduced to God. That This is one of the central purposes of ordered corporate worship. More mature Christians structure worship in such a way that it shapes the affections and teaches others how to worship rightly. This is certainly true for all people, but it's perhaps most important for children. Our children will come to know and serve Christ only in as much as they are taught the word of God and guided through scripture-formed practices that experientially form their hearts and their habits. And this is exactly the purpose and power of biblically saturated corporate worship. What will best bring our children to Christ and nurture them into mature Christian adults is the word of God recited, sung, prayed, preached, and reenacted through scripture-shaped worship services. And even more than that, trust in the power of scripture to transform our children and, and us 
means that we rely on what God has prescribed to do this. What has God prescribed as the means for transformation to take place? Well, what he has prescribed is the weekly intergenerational gatherings of the church. Why would we want to take this God-ordained, Bible-prescribed means of grace from our children, especially if they're unregenerate? My children need the preached word of God just as much as I do. And they need it in the context of the whole body. Now, can it be difficult? Can it be difficult for moms and dads to hear, to hear the word preached while caring for younger children? Absolutely. But even that is transforming. Not only is learning to hear the preached word important and transformative for the children, working to patiently train children to hear the preached word is also sanctifying for us, their parents. Are humans easily distracted? Is that a consideration? Sure, especially in an increasingly entertainment-minded fast food society. But maybe forcing myself to engage carefully with the sermon while the toddler fusses across the aisle as her mother sorts through her purse looking for the fishy crackers, maybe that is sanctifying for me as well. And maybe my encouraging and reassuring that parent across the aisle with a simple smile or an encouraging word after the service, maybe, maybe that's the body of Christ at work. Parenting is hard. There's no doubt about it. But this is why young parents need the whole body surrounding them and encouraging them while they seek to parent their children in the service. They, they've been doing it all week. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have an experienced empty nester step alongside the struggling parent, offering a helping hand or a word of encouragement or a supportive comment? Some church leaders believe that they're, they're really best equipping parents in their congregation by taking the children away so that parents can have a break. Do parents sometimes feel like they need a break from parenting? Absolutely. And especially in a society in which sort of me time has become a priority above anything else. But truly equipping parents to help them accomplish their God-given responsibility to nurture their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord would be to help them through the challenge of parenting, not by removing the challenge and actually hindering the children's maturity by making their primary object of imitation other immature children. And perhaps setting aside my interests as a parent for the spiritual benefit of my children, is a blessing to me as well. There's certainly nothing wrong with mom and dad getting a sitter to take an evening for themselves. But why would we take a break from parenting during the most important hour of the week? What does that communicate to our children about the importance, or maybe lack thereof, of corporate worship? I want to give a a couple tips for parents and for pastors and for other people in the congregation regarding how to approach this subject of children in worship. But one book that I'd like to recommend that does this well is a book by Robbie Castleman entitled Parenting in the Pew, published by IVP Books. It's a helpful little book that my wife and I have gone to over and over again that gives just practical, helpful tips for some things that you might do with children of various stages to help them engage and pay attention in a worship service. Highly recommended. I want to conclude here, though, with just a couple tips. The first to pastors and church leaders. The primary piece of advice I have for church leaders is to regularly and explicitly welcome children into the corporate worship of your church. 
parents need the encouragement and support of leadership as they bring their children to Christ. The parents in your congregation are likely already hesitant because of the growing culture of our day to bring their children with them. And then they're embarrassed every time one of their children squeals or drops a hymnal. They need the positive encouragement that you can give them. You can give them that kind of encouragement through occasional brief words or public statements from the pulpit. Your support will go further than you may even know in cultivating an atmosphere in your church that welcomes children. And then here's just a few quick suggestions for parents. Parenting is hard, and parenting in a church service is even harder. But here are a couple things that you can do. First of all, don't wait till Sunday morning. Prepare your children ahead of time. Sing the hymns that are coming this Sunday during the week during your family worship. Read the scripture passage to be preached. Talk about it. Get their minds already engaged in what's going to happen on Sunday. Prepare Saturday evening. Get the clothes ready. Get them to bed early. It's hard enough that children have to get up earlier on Sunday and probably are missing naps. Prepare ahead of time. Preparing ahead of time can do so much to help your children be able to sit and listen and pay attention and benefit from the service. And then plan to get to the service early. Of course, that can only happen if you've planned ahead of time. But but come to the sanctuary early with plenty of time to to get things ready, to prepare the hymns for the day. These kinds of preparatory activities will certainly help your children. And then finally, just relax. Breathe. Prepare yourself. Wrestling with small children all service long can be very exhausting, but you will reap spiritual rewards in the lives of your children for years to come. And just know that God sees your heart. He accepts as worship every seemingly trivial thing that you do to help your child in the service. Every time you have to silence your child, pick up a dropped hymnal, take your child out of the service for a brief word of admonition, God looks warmly down at your faithfulness to follow his command to lead the next generation to him. And then finally, a word for others in the congregation. Perhaps you don't have children or your children have already left the home. I I simply offer this word of admonition. Please welcome the children just like Jesus does. Remember that the way that we welcome children in the church service directly affects the way that they will respond to the church. It will affect the way that they respond to God. Let the children in your congregation know that they are valued. Share a word of encouragement with parents who are striving to spiritually nurture their children. If you don't have children in the pew with you, why not consider offering to sit with a young family, especially a single mother or a family in which one parent is involved in leadership during the service. Do everything that you can to encourage the parents in your congregation who are seeking to nurture their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, let the little children come. Our children need it. This is what will bring them to Christ. The parents in our congregations need it. This is sanctifying for them. And really, the whole church needs it too. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. That helps to spread the word. Please share the podcast on social media. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.